America had its long, very painful Vietnam. Is Israel doing that now? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. One should always be cautious, not just in seeking out parallels in history, but in searching for lessons learned from prior events in history. One can read too much and make those sought-after comparisons less worthy or useless altogether. But history is there for us to learn from. One can hardly overstate the costs of not learning the obvious lessons of history. Think of America's war in Vietnam. Since it finally came to an end in 1975, one would have thought we would have learned the obvious lessons, but amazingly, our government has been determined to dismiss those as mere Vietnam syndrome, that we need to just resume our warrior stand, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead as someone once said. While there's no exact parallels between America's Vietnam and Israel's current ill-considered war, there are certainly important opportunities right there for the world to learn from. And once again, those lessons are being ignored. And the price is just barely beginning to be paid. As our guest today, Van Goss, writes in his piece in The Nation, Everything that Israel is doing to the people of Gaza, especially killing civilians through intensive aerial bombardment, was prefigured during the American ground war in Vietnam. And one basic question stands above them all. Winning. Winning. What would that look like? Our guest Van Goss is professor of history at Franklin and Marshall College and co-chair of Historians for Peace and Democracy. What a concept, peace and democracy. And he begins his essay observing that comparisons between Israel's destruction of Gaza and America's war in Vietnam are becoming more and more overt. Today, we will discuss Israel's Vietnam and ours. Professor uh, Gus, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. Well, there are similarities and differences, for sure, in both Vietnam and Israel-Palestine. The people there know the history. But here in America, there's been significant unawareness and as a result, a sense of shock and suddenness. For example, to many, the brutal massacre in Israel on October 7th came as a total shock. It seemed to just come out of nowhere. And in 1964, American awareness of the French war in Vietnam was, shall we say, minimal. Both sparks that ignited the wars seemed to come out of nowhere. What was the reality? In what way, uh, well, let's start with that. And what was what was the reality? Was were they did they just come out of nowhere? Well, first I want to actually push back a bit on what you said about the US in 1964. Please do. Um uh, uh, there you know, I myself had probably taught and had that perspective that the Americans knew so little about the French defeat and cared less and assumed that you know, but, um, drank their own Kool-Aid mm -hmm. about what had been happening. It in it now is clear, and I'm there's a particular historian, Frederick Logeval, L-O-G-E-V-A-L-L, -L, wrote a fine book about this called Choosing War, quite a long time ago. And in fact, there was much more awareness of the uh, disaster of uh, the U.S.-backed French. Uh, military campaign from 1946 to 1954 of how badly they had been defeated by the Vietnamese. Um, 
and of indeed of the weaknesses of the puppet regime that the U.S. had created with uh, Ngo Din Aziem, the so-called Winston Churchill of Southeast Asia. That's what yeah. Lyndon Johnson called him. There was the public like, oh, this is going well. But there was actually a great deal of uncertainty. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pushing back on that because, you know, what, what I, and I admit, I was certainly one of the people who took for granted that the Gulf of Tonkin vote, you know, zero, not one dissenter in the House and only two in the Senate reflected this huge consensus. It turns out that isn't really true, that actually the two dissenters in the Senate had many, many other senators saying, I agree with you, but I can't. Johnson has presented us with a fait accompli. So there had been a great deal of concern about, after all, and I want to point this out, a second land war in Asia? Korea was not a happy memory for anyone. True. A very bad memory, you know. Uh, Eisenhower got elected on the promise to end the war in Korea. And, you know, claim you couldn't claim it as a victory. And uh, so, in fact, there was much more awareness. The U.S. didn't blunder into Vietnam not understanding. They they were well aware that they were up against an extremely formidable enemy. And in fact, the U.S. and, you know, I'm not trying, there's no point in drawing exact parallels. Right. I mean, honestly, serious historians don't do that. They don't draw exact parallels right. and they do not talk about cycles. No cycles, okay? History is always in its own history, always new in certain senses, okay? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So the U.S. didn't blunder in sort of like, oh, well, we're just going to go in and win. It actually went in out of sheer desperation because the project that they'd had since 1954 of creating, you know, nation building in so-called South Vietnam was completely failing. The government was collapsing. So it was a desperate move. And, you know, one could say that what Netanyahu is doing now, it's not the same kind, but there's definitely an, a, a, a desperation. We they can't they can't think of something else to do. Of course, there is something else to do, which is make peace. Yeah, but they can't concede that any more than Johnson could. And uh, and so they are they're going for broke. And the comparison here, as in my article on the nation, is that the military strategy is to you know, and I I quote uh, the brilliant book by Nick Terse, you know, uh -huh. about Vietnam: kill everything that moves. Right. That actually is the strategy. And that's as in Vietnam. That is going. That is that cannot work. You know, you're you're sowing you're sowing dragon's teeth. You know, every <laughs> every every male and maybe female relative of some child killed in Gaza is going to grow up thinking, I you know, Absolutely. they deserve justice. Absolutely. And that's so the idea, the, the Israeli idea, which actually, if you think about it, is quite similar to, you know, William Westmoreland's strategy of so-called attrition. We can just kill enough of them that that'll be it. You know, that's what Westmoreland's per perspective was. And if if while you're killing them, you're actually killing vast numbers of civilians, so what? Escalate the body count. That's Vietnam. Mm. So, I mean, you know, and look what happened to the U.S. Our military was... Um, effectively destroyed. And it's not me who said that. It was a top military analyst who said it in a famous article in 1969 in the Journal of the Armed Forces that uh, it was no longer functioning. Hundreds of officers were being killed by their own men because they had, you know, led them into combat and they didn't want to fight. And that's the state of the U.S. military. Now, there is no sign of that in the IDF at all, mm, right? Mm -hmm. The IDF is a, you know, uh, 
so far. I mean, you know, small numbers of people are refusing to go and fight draft resistors, if you wish. But so far, the IDF is is solid. Um, and that's a huge difference, as is Israeli society with small, small dissent. Yeah, know? yeah. And there, there are similarities, things to learn, differences, for sure, differences. And the idea that tremendous bombing that uh, you know carpet bombing uh, indiscriminate bombing is going to work if you look back at what you cited the the, the war in korea uh, people today in 2024 are mystified a lot i think by the militaristic bravado of north korea's kim jong un yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the, the americans for the most part and i was surprised we don't know about the effects of uh, massive bombing of the northern part of Korea in the 1950s, and what effect that may be having today. Fill us in, yes. please. Yes, and I and I grew up knowing about the Korean War and reading heroic accounts and how tough it was, and the Marines at Injun right. and oh, the bridges of Tokori. Right. But I never read anything, and, and in fact, one of the first references I read. read well, I mean, it's in Michael Walzer's Just and Unjust War, which is a book I would recommend to any American to read. Michael Walzer, Just and Unjust War. It is the classic book on what what are actually the laws of war, and with full of historical mm. examples. And that was the first place I read about the un extraordinary and massive slaughter of civilians, bombing, in and and more in Korea. But then there's actually a, a remarkable reference. One of the, the most prominent early dissenter from the Vietnam intervention, which you know didn't happen overnight, it was building right. over time, sure. was Senator Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon, yes. who was a very tough character and very unafraid. And he called it McNamara's War, said it wasn't worth the life of one American boy, that mm -hmm. it was sheer colonialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really powerful stuff. Um, and not, you know... I mean, he wasn't just a gadfly. He was somebody who actually carried a lot of legislative weight. Anyway, back in 62 or 63, he said, we bombed everything, every every structure, every inch of North Korea. And did it stop them? No. Right. So I thought, well, goodness, he knew that in 62 or 63. So, yes, this is, you know, we we Americans, well, we're not alone in this. We We forget the things we have done and claim our innocence. But that is not useful and um i would one would hope that this will come to israeli society that there will be some kind of large-scale awakening um to the consequences of 75 years of military occupation and repression yeah october 7th didn't come out of nowhere i mean it was a little no, extreme no it was it was a it was a pogrom it was a massacre it was you know uh I'm going to make, say something that may that needs ahead. to be said. Go ahead. Which is that 1,200. I mean, the counts have they've varied the counts or lowered the count, but 1,200 or so Israelis, including guest workers from Thailand, etc., mm -hmm. were killed. Um, a significant number of those were soldiers. Now, I oh. do not celebrate the killing of anyone under any circumstances, including members of the IDF. Of course, but it is not correct to lump. 337 or something like that members of the idf in with civilians killing civilians is a war crime killing soldiers is not a war crime whether they're hamas fighters who are 
you know, effectively soldiers, that is what they are, or ITF fighters. And, you know, you, any, whether they're killed, you know, asleep in their bunks, which is, of course, horrible to imagine. Right. But in fact, you know, as Walzer points out, the nature of a soldier, a soldier has the right to be killed. Mm. But you have to think about mm. that. Mm. So, and, you know, it, but, but civilians don't have that wiping right. Out, wiping out dozens of civilians in kibbutzes was a war crime. There's no question. But we should separate that from the military attacks. And that would be in the same way that, you know, if Israel goes and does actually fight and eliminate Hamas fighters, it has a right to do so. What right. it does not have a right to do so is kill tens of thousands of civilians because they happen to be in somewhere in the vicinity of where the Hamas fighters are. Yeah. That's that's uh, certainly true. There's so much to discuss here. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Van Goss, Professor of History at Franklin and Marshall College, talking about his article in The Nation magazine, Israel's Vietnam and Ours. And the last U.S. the last war that the U.S. entered legally was the Second World War. There was yeah. a, a, there's a constitutionally required. Uh, declaration of war. We're not supposed to go into a war. Our founders were very careful to make sure that that was the case. They didn't want some king or dictator to say to, to just start a war. Well, the last time that happened was in 1941. Never mm -hmm. since. Of the indiscriminate bombing in Gaza, you say it's a coward's way of war. It's also essentially criminal if the law of war as codified by the Geneva Convention means anything. I mean, we have the American Constitution, which says, you know, you got to declare war before you make war. But there's also the Geneva Convention. What bearing does that have on the Israeli war in Gaza and the West Bank? The Geneva Convention. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's not an accident that the that I mean, the Secretary General of the UN can, did um, took advantage of his rare but special right to convene the Security Council has declared it completely disproportionate. Um, the ICJ has already, International Court of Justice has already issued its preliminary finding that there is good cause to define this as genocide, which is more than war crimes. <clears throat> I mean. If what Israel is doing in Gaza doesn't constitute war crimes, then the word has no meaning at all. Right, right. You know, they, they've <laughs> proportionality is the concept, the damage to innocent civilians and all civilians are innocent. There's no such thing as a not innocent civilian. Now, the top leaders of Israel have all denied that. They've said they're all president of Israel. They're all equally guilty. There's no one innocent in Gaza. He said that. OK, Herzog. But. In fact, the law of war says all civilians, regardless of how vicious or fascist or bad their government is, civilians are, by their nature, innocent. They're not combatants. So killing tens of thousands of them, and realistically, we're now well into the tens of thousands because there's so many buried under the rubble in Gaza. Right. And with, I mean, the prospect of mass starvation is extremely real. Yes, really an in, in and massive in disease because of the lack of potable water so this is the beginning of something that is really horrific you know i mean on, on a global scale so those are war crimes now the argument that they constitute genocide here i rely on the very distinguished israeli historian omer bartov who teaches at Brown University and who is a, one of the top scholars of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, uh -huh. Omer Bartov, 
And months ago, writing in the New York Times, and I mean, this is someone with top credentials on what genocide is what the hol- on the Holocaust, mm-hmm. a very distinguished person, and an Israeli. And he said, and I, what he said was, and this is, I, I think, at the end of October, okay? He said, it is, it is hard to, disp- to be clear, absolutely certain that a genocide has happened. And we can talk about the definition of genocide, okay? That's important. Yes. Um, we can, he said, it, it's a, you will not be able to say for sure, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, until it's happened. But the point is to prevent it from happening, not to wait. And after it's happened, say, well, that may meet the standard. I mean, um, what he declared in this article was that there was very substantial evidence, you know, very convincing evidence of a genocidal intent on the part of Israeli leaders. And that was at the end of October, wow. beginning of November. And that's, you know, I mean, intent. this wasn't in some left-wing publication. It was in the New York Times mm-hmm. by someone of unimpeachable scholarly integrity and an Israeli. So, and the, much has happened since then. Yes. So, and, and remember that, the, I'm not, I mean, anyone can look up, you know, the definition of genocide. Genocide isn't you've killed everybody in a group, okay? It's your intention to destroy not necessarily kill or otherwise just otherwise culturally destroyed you know uh-huh. um, um deprive of of their nationhood if you want mm-hmm. a, a, a people or a part of the people and i'm and that's my rough approximation but anyone can look it up and to me it's uh, unfortunately very clear but given the extraordinary number of deaths in Vietnam and parts of Southeast Asia next to it, easily three million. I have a very distinguished yeah, colleague, colleague who came back right after I wrote that article and said, "You know, I was in Hanoi, and they're saying that actually their best count now is about five million. Oh my God! And it's... what? <laughs> you know, did, did did those people just you know fall, start you know walk into the sea by accident? No, most of them were killed by U.S. firepower." And by far the largest number in, in South Vietnam. And I think that, you know, quite seriously, that does meet the definition of genocide. You're going to eliminate a very large part of the people. And much of it was intended, and it's actually in a certain odd way resembles what the British were doing in World War II. It, it was um, forced draft urbanization, I believe is the term that mm. some of these national security intellectuals, these, I'm sorry, war criminals like Walt Rostow, mm-hmm. Samuel Huntington, very eminent men, you know, and whether we're, if we're going to, if we bomb everything in the countryside, they will be forced into the cities and in the cities, we have more control over them. And that will the that will drain the sea in which the fish, so-called the gorillas, mm-hmm. the famous, you know, Maoak, and and then we can just kill all the gorillas. So it's it's an exterminationist impulse, you know. And we do see, I'm sorry if I'm going on, oh, on no. the parallel. I mean, what what exactly is supposed to happen to the two million people in that incredibly compressed open air prison, hundreds of thousands living in tents in UN compounds, which are getting bombed. Yes. I I I, I'm, it's not, does anyone actually have any clear idea unless these desperate efforts by the U.S., Egypt, Qatar, you know, work? I mean, I'll tell you what it looks like to me. It looks like a 
an extreme worse version of the Nakba of 1948. The idea is that at a certain point, they're just going to get pushed in the Sinai Desert. This is what I think a large part of the Israelis, not all by any means, but Netanyahu and others think, we're just going to push them out. And then the international community can deal with them as they have dealt with, you know, uh, a famine in Ethiopia. You know, someone, someone will come in because you can't let Two million people just die, and they'll be out of Gaza and someone else's problem. And who cares? Someone I actually, I, I mean, they're talking about that. Mm. And mm. if you, you know, get through the, the, the caution and almost dainty attitude of the U.S. press, actually, the times you can find it in there. They're talking about doing this, pushing everybody out of Gaza or most people into the desert, into Sinai. So these are the parallels between Vietnam and Israel. There's a lot of parallels, and I, I'm reminded you're, you're bringing up some unpleasant memories here, I have to say, yep. back when there was something called the pacification program in Vietnam, which was part of what you're talking about, uh, and also carpet bombing. I mean, the phrase mm-hmm. carpet bombing, to, to make it so that the people couldn't live in yeah, the free, countryside and had to free come fire in, free, free fire zones free fire zones yes indeed and you keep them in you keep them concentrated in a camp and if that sounds like a concentration camp there's a reason for that oh it was a you it was a top un official who years ago referred to gaza as the world's largest open air prison yes these are not obscure things. People all over the world know that he said that. Oh, it was it eight or ten years ago? Because that's what Gaza is. With one notes, you know, the complicity of the Egyptians. Right. They keep their side sealed as well. And we didn't win in Vietnam. We did not win in no. Vietnam. And I remember no. in nineteen, no. I was in my spending my last semester in college in in, in London in nineteen seventy two. Yes, I'm that old. They. Uh, uh, there was a headline of a, of a British newspaper said Nixon's Christmas deluge of death, mm-hmm. and like like that's going to win. That's going to win hearts and minds. And if you have, dear listener, if you haven't seen that movie, Hearts and Minds, I recommend that. Uh, but we didn't win there. And bombing, did we win in North Korea by having a, a tremendous bombing there? I don't think so. However. However, there's there's precedent for this in in World War II. You talked about the British, and uh, you've described the indiscriminate murder of enemy uh, non-combatants is what the Americans and British practiced in World War II. Uh, if people have read uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, they know probably know about uh, uh, Dresden there. You know, and it, there was tremendous firebombing in in Japan non-nuclear uh, firebombing in Japan. Uh, so the U.S. And, and England have done this kind of thing in the past. And I wonder if that's not genocide as well. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it has that resemblance, right? I, I mean, actually, you know, if you, I'd say General Curtis LeMay, who mm-hmm. was overseeing the bombing of Japan, uh, I think there was, I'm not, I don't mean to, you know, these are separate instances. I think there was a very, I mean, firebombing 60, apparently it was more than 60 cities. I mean, the numbers keep, basically every city in Japan got firebombed. And firebombing is intended to kill people. That's what it does. And these Japanese cities were made out of wood. You lay down incendiaries. You're not blowing up factories with incendiaries to burn everything up to kill people. Well, as many people as you possibly can. And then Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
And there are, you know, various motives to demonstrate overwhelming power to the Soviets for the post-war world, to the utterly spurious claim, vicious propaganda claim that this was somehow to save American lives, which has been decisively refuted, decisively refuted. General Eisenhower himself estimated the American deaths in an invasion of Japan at 35,000. So this idea that Truman somehow saved a million American lives. Um, but I think the, the, the relish, and the movie Oppenheimer is very good on this, actually, the relish with which the Americans slaughtered millions of Japanese is, suggests the genocidal intent. Yeah. Now, in Germany, I was trying to find the quote for that article, but I, 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 it's in um, Walzer's book, but I didn't have a copy around. Um, you know, I mean, the Germans got this going, to be clear. I mean, the Germans... They didn't have the heavy bombers, and they didn't have, you know, right. uh, anywhere near as much air supremacy as the Americans and the British had. But they killed uh, at least forty thousand British civilians in the Blitz. Right, and then towards the end of the war, I mean, they they've got their V one and V two rockets, which I mean, those that's just something that's going to go over and fall somewhere in London. It's not intended. It's no military. So the Germans initiated the practice in, at Rotterdam before that, before the Blitz bombing cities for the purposes of terror, okay? Um, but Churchill said in response to the Blitz that we will revisit, we will re, we will revisit this on them 10 times over. We will, they will, you know, they did this to us. We will do it to them 10 times over. And that's pretty much what they did. Yeah. So with this, and I, I was, you know, reading up on this, there was this idea that somehow, well, if we, if we bomb the cities so that, you know, destroy all the, the housing, de-housing them, mm-hmm. this will break the will of the German population, their morale. Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a very fancy way of actually demonstrating a genocidal intent. You know, yeah. we're going to destroy them. So we're going to destroy them to, an, to the extent that it, it breaks their will. It, it, they, they submit and uh, it didn't work. I mean, you know, the Germans <laughs> were remained very united, fought to the end. I mean, as horrible as it is, right? Right. Well, so, and yeah. I, I was going to say that, you know, Hitler bombed uh, the UK fairly heavily. You know, it's, it was yes. indis- indiscriminate bombing. It didn't work. The, the U.S. Uh, bombed uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos very heavily. And guess what? It didn't work. It only made yeah. people more determined to dig tunnels and to fight and to never give up. And, uh, you know, it seems like that might be uh, some some shared aspects between Vietnam and uh, Israel's current well, war. Well, the problem is there are other examples that, you know, I don't, I, I, I think... I'm, <laughs> I have a, uh, a friend when when this was beginning back in October, someone who's very historically informed, who said, "I think I think what they're looking at is what Putin did to uh, to Chechnya, to the capital of Chechnya, which was to shell, bomb, and kill everything." And you know the Russians did because they had, you know, <laughs> no international observers don't care about international opinion. The Russians did, in fact. Um, kill their way to victory over the Chechnyan insurgents. Grozny, that's the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, destroy everything. There are, there are examples of 
I mean, you know, the U.S. managed to kick ISIS out of Mosul. Uh, I mean, with massive civilian casualties, it it defeated the Iraqi resistance with massive civilian deaths in Fallujah. Um, in fact, when uh, Secretary Austin early in October was going over to Israel, he said, well, you know, we we know what happens. And if you fight that kind of war based on Mosul and Fallujah, you will have extraordinarily high civilian casualties. And, you know, you might not want to do that. Well, the Israelis went ahead. I mean, this is a version of, you know, if you exert enough force, mm. you will, you will, you will uh, take control of the situation. It's not working. They're claiming they've killed eight or 9,000 Hamas fighters. Um, Were there that the general, many? Est general estimate is that Hamas had 40,000. So they actually, they're, 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 they're nowhere near eliminating Hamas, nor are they going to be. I mean, this is an illusion because Hamas will recruit of course. massively, of you know. Of course, of course. What better, uh, what better recruiting I mean, tool than to be get the heck, you know, the hell bombed out of you? I mean, Jesus. Well, yeah, but and also, I mean, to have carried off as 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 vicious a massacre as it was, right? You know, it 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 will be seen as finally, uh, finally bringing some revenge onto the Israelis. Yeah. You know, and the military commander of ha Hamas, who spent many years in Israeli prisons and is a very t extremely uh, tough character, but he planned this. I mean, he's clearly very good at what he does. His his family was wiped out by Israeli bombing in 2013. Mm. So, you know, this is you, you, you reap what you sow. And that is yes. not in any way at all to condone right. October 7th, no. the akin murder of civilians and spreading terror. But it was there were there there was a history to this of the intent to totally dominate through force uh, the Palestinians. So we have to hope that somehow, what we really have to hope for, let's be clear, is that the U.S. finally has the takes the overwhelming leverage it has over Israel, and we of course it does. Yes, you know. It has the leverage. It's been used before. James Baker used it back in 1991. He cut off Israel's Exim Bank uh, credits, you know, which would have a very have a severe effect on their economy because of settlements. U.S.'s total capacity to, you know, play hardball. And but the U.S. Was, yeah. certainly had a lot of leverage over the alleged government of South Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Right. Was, well, no, I mean, which, but that's an interesting, I mean, it was not it but the difference is that i mean the the puppet government in south vietnam right which did you know was not wasn't taking orders from the us it, there was a great no. deal of but uh, nobody in their right mind would call the state of israel a puppet government of the no. us if anything the, the the tail is wagging the dog here you know yeah i mean that netanyahu, netanyahu is completely defiant he'll he'll go make a deal with anybody and insult the americans and make fun of them and he's absolutely certain that no matter what he will get whatever aid but there because is some degree real. of leverage mm -hmm. there is some degree of leverage that we oh, have oh absolutely oh no i mean it just would take a president and willing to and a Congress willing to exert it. Of course, yeah. it is. Yeah, that'll be the day. Could happen. No, well, no. I mean, 
th- there is the capacity oh, to yes. make Israel make peace. Yes, there is. There is, and there's no question. One of the similarities, uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, uh, professor of, uh, of history at Franklin Marshall and Marshall College, Van Goss, talking about his piece in the Nation: Israel's, Vietnam, and ours. The presidents of the United States. Uh, back in 1964, in the, in the mid-60s, we had uh, President Lyndon Johnson, who, aside from the war, was a pretty progressive leader. I mean, he really modeled himself on FDR in a lot of ways, and he, I think he wanted to be FDR. And you say the Biden administration is, quote, an uneasy enabler. I wonder if uh, talk, there were political pressures back then on both sides, and there are certainly political pressures now from APAC all the way to, you know, a huge number of people are calling for a ceasefire. So what about, do they share this similarity that both Johnson and Biden are uneasy enablers? And if so, in what ways? No, I don't think so. You know, uh, the evidence, and there's plenty of it. I mean, with Johnson, you have to be careful because he would say different things to different people. Yeah. But the best evidence that I've seen in Lokoval's book, Choosing War, is very good on this, is that Johnson, when he came into power after Kennedy's assassination, was unequivocally dead set on winning winning against communism wherever it was. Yes. He was not dragged unwillingly. He was not uneasy. And in fact, his attitude towards anyone who disagreed with him, including people in his own party, was one of of uh brutal dismissal Mm. and um johnson really led led the way you know he wasn't he wasn't being backed in um and you know backed up by people he had chosen and kept in office like mcnamara who didn't who didn't want to um uh challenge him you know didn't have the nerve so it really was johnson's war Mm -hmm. and i mean the uneasy is because the, the damage to U.S. standing in the world is so self-evident. You know, most of the world is with the Palestinians. Yes. The governments of Europe and, or at least the major countries in Europe and the U.S. are, but the U.S. is going to have, there are extremely serious consequences. And you know, the best way to measure this is to read Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, who's kind of a mouthpiece for the you know, foreign policy establishment center, you know, Uh always thinking of the U.S., very loyal to Israel. But he has consistently been publishing things that are, in effect, big warnings. And, you know, via the New York Times, so this is the center, the establishment, if you want, warning of the terrible consequences if Israel, he's been saying this since October, if Israel goes into a complete war against the Palestinian people. Thomas Friedman, who nobody in his right mind would call a peacenik or, you know, aggressively Zionist, right? And pro-U.S. He he actually published a piece back in, I think, October, I mean, weeks in, pointing to the example of India, the uh, premier of India, who after the Pakistani military intelligence actively supported a huge terrorist attack in India, an attack on hotels by you know, Kashmiri militants, hundreds of people killed, a real slaughter, right? right, right. And the then, this isn't the current, this isn't Modi, this is Modi's predecessor, a very sort of uh, moderate, thoughtful person. I forget the name of this I president, remember, but yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He uh, chose not to retaliate against Pakistan because of what would the consequences be? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. did you actually want to just, well, we have to show them who's boss and chose not to, even though there's no question that Pakistani military intelligence was severely implicated in a really large scale terrorist attack on Indian soil as he chose not to because, you know, rational statecraft. And there's Friedman in the Times promoting this in effect, really, to, you know, to the Israelis. I mean, because, you know, saying, well, you know, it might make more sense not to retaliate because what, what you have to consider the consequences. But they are acting maddened, you know, maddened by eh, grief, yes, but also maddened at the idea that the Palestinians would would get away with anything you know they need to they're trying to show dominance and it's not working it's not going to work and i wonder so, about the, the similarity if if there is a similarity and that perhaps i mean you talk about uh the the israeli state has been uh very aggressive for quite a long time since its founding in 1948 and even even you know in its early days when 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 britain was really calling the shots and it was uh, it's been a warrior nation and you talk about lyndon johnson you know wanting to take on uh the uh godless monolithic uh communist threat anywhere and everywhere you know the truman doctrine and just putting that into effect i wonder if there's a similarity that both societies are in a way warrior societies well i think israel's much further down that i mean the us i mean johnson's you know, claim was that he could fight a massive land war in Vietnam without mobilizing the reserves uh, or the National Guard or putting the country in a war funding. He said, we can have guns and butter, too. Uh -huh. um, and he because, you know, the support for the war was was very thin. You know, it was very much. Well, if our boys go off to fight and he um, whereas in Israel, it's 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 not thin. It's very deep. And, you know, it is. I mean, you you remember as as do I, though I was my older brother. <clears throat> anyone with a C average going to college on yeah. more more or less full time was exempt. So we had a working class war, as my yes. friend Chris Oppy wrote in a famous book. Um, only only ten percent of eligible American men served in Vietnam. Only thirty percent were drafted. You could get out, you know, your Bill Clinton or your Dan Quayle or your George W. Bush. Notice every one of them, somebody pulls a string, you get to go on the guard, you get, you know, get a defer deferment. I mean, so this, it, the comparison is quite different. Israel is a thoroughly militarized society. You know, everybody serves. It's And I'm no great, I'm not an historian of Israel, but one, one is, you know, they say that the, the military, everything I've ever read, is the central institution in their society because everybody serves, every Jew, sorry, every Jewish person. Mm -hmm. And I think one or two of the other small minorities, like the Druze, you know, Arab, Arab Israelis are, are, quote, exempt, as are actually the Haredi, the, the Orthodox. But everyone else, the vast bulk, um, they all serve, and, and that, we haven't had anything like that in this in the, in the U.S. since World War II, right? right. Where so everybody the, serves. Yeah. So, so is Israel is is far more of a warrior society than yeah, the U.S. Yeah. ever was uh, since well, the yeah. Second World War. Yeah. Uh, can it be said that both Vietnam and Israel's war share or shared colonialistic aspects? Because I've heard that quite a bit. And in, in what ways do you think they they share that colonialism well i mean 
it's complicated. I mean, I think I'm, I think settler colonialism is a, is a, an important analytical concept. Um, though that doesn't mean that all forms of settler colonialism are, you know, exactly the same. Um, you know, you, you, you move some of your people somewhere as settlers to colonize a country, which by definition, <clears throat> frankly, means, you know, subjugating or exterminating or expelling the indigenous people. Now, beyond that, you have many varieties and whatever. I mean, the U.S. is, you know, perhaps the world's leading example of settler colonialism. Look at us oh, yeah. dominating a continent, right? Um, so anyway, I think Israel is absolutely an instance of settler colonialism and premised on the need to uh, actually expel the indigenous population, the Arab population. And here, and again, you know, I'm, I'm dropping references to books. So if someone hears this and says, this is outrageous, what do you mean? They should read the great Israeli historian, Benny Morris, his book, Righteous Victims. This is a classic work. Morris, by the way, is an extremely serious, hardcore Zionist. There's no question of his politics. In this book, he's a terrific historian. He documents irrefutably, which is what historians can do. You get the archives and archives tell you what people were actually saying and planning well before World War II, before the final solution, the attempted extermination of European Jewry. The World Zionist Organization, not for public consumption, but privately, planned the complete transfer, which is a polite word for expulsion of the Arab population of the place they were going to call Israel, of Palestine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was their plan. They always, and this isn't the revisionists and Yabotinsky over there on the side, which are, you know, frankly, fascists, but this is the mainstream of labor Zionism. They were always, we, now it's not, you know, tra large scale transfers for population were not unknown. Mm. Unbelievable transfers at the end of World War II which may have, you know, normalized the, the, the Nakba, the 800,000 driven out of, I can't even remember how many Palestinian towns and villages. I've been to one or two of them, empty, empty villages, empty to 1948. So that was always the plan long before the Holocaust was to drive out the Arabs and claim the land. So that's a form of colonialism yeah. that should be familiar to those of us who know our American history beyond, you know, little joke little uh, rituals of thanksgiving you know? <laughs> that i mean that that's true all across new england you know drive out exterminate and exterminate and then extremely violent resistance you know um that's that's and, and that's actually part of our culture this is you know i like to watch old western movies because in many ways from the 50s especially they're all about settler colonialism right. you know there's the Mexicans over here and there's the Native Americans who are, you know, subjugated but fighting back, you know, and, and all of this. And, and the, the troops are, I mean, what are John Ford movies are about, you know, cavalry troops who are there to keep down the indigenous so that the settlers can come in and take their land. This is hardly obscure. Okay, so, but in, this is not... <laughs> Indochina, French Indochina, was not an example of settler colonialism. It was the other kind, where a a small imported elite with a lot of police and military power dominate. Mm -hmm. But there were there weren't you know it, it's not Kenya or or what was Rhodesia or South Africa or the U.S. There there um, the French sat on top of the existing society 
used massive amounts of force to create, you know, create a labor force, take over the land. What the French did, I mean, their method of ruling, which was hardly unusual, was to co-op the existing elites, the 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 uh, landlords, and you know, give mm-hmm. them a little share and back them up and get you know use military force to collect very high taxes and make people do forced labor um and the effect of that kind of colonialism uh is to completely delegitimize the the traditional elites unless of course they resist and ho chi minh was you know the the son of someone who resisted i mean you know you have to make a decision then are you going to go with the occupiers or not so, friend, the, the, they're the you know yes, these are varieties of colonialism, but they're quite different um, versions. Colonialism takes many forms, including you know uh, neo-colonialism, where uh, a and this is relevant to what we're talking about now, where you know a a subjugated people, a dominated people, are allowed to have the trappings of sovereignty, a flag, maybe some police. But they don't have real sovereignty, and that would be of great concern. We, we've seen that since the Oslo Accord since 1993, is that the Palestinian Authority has never come anywhere near having you know sovereignty or state right, authority, right. because the Israeli military police and armed settlers, which is to say death squads, mm-hmm. armed settlers, are free to go anywhere and do anything they want. So, the, you know, the West Bank is neo-colonialism. In, in, in a really brutal form. Oh, yeah. And when I was in Israel 12, 13 years ago, and I was with the, one of the great Israeli human rights groups, the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolition, led by Jews, and they said, this, these are, look at the map here, look at the West Bank. These are just Bantustans, the term mm. for the mm. fake little governments that the South African um, uh-huh. white she, regime created, yeah. little fake governments, you know, and you hand out some weapons and you let them have a little flag, but they're there to do your bidding. And I wonder about so, I wonder about the religious aspect of it as well. I mean, uh, Netanyahu and a lot of the people in the state, the Israeli state, hide behind you know. Well, if you criticize us, then you're anti-Semitic. I think that's. I mean, there's religion and there's nationalism, two very different things. But in Vietnam, I know in the early days, uh, I mean, the French obviously Catholic, the Vietnamese not Catholic, and. There was Cardinal Spellman here who had the American Friends yeah. of Vietnam, the, yeah. you know, protecting the Catholic interests in Vietnam. And that, now that kind of faded from, from public view uh, fairly quickly. But this, this religious aspect, you know, uh, Israel using, saying, well, you can't criticize us. I mean, if you're against what we're doing, you're anti-Semitic. Your, your comments on that, please. Any similarities? I'd have to think about that because, I mean, you know, the overwhelming majority of Israelis, 80 percent or uh, 70, something like that. I mean, there are these smaller groups like the Druze and the Bedouins, but very small. Um, It's it's more because our, our, I mean, let's say close to 80 percent are Jewish, but they're drastically split between secular Jews and um, extremely orthodox. Right. And there's great tensions between the two. I mean, I've seen that. You know, people, um, they're, they're not exactly united, except they're united on, or they have been, on keeping down keeping down the Arabs, to put it bluntly. Right. And remember, the Arabs, people, most people are, don't seem to be aware of that the Palestinian, Palestinian people 
are not of any one single religious denomination. There are many, very substantial right. numbers of, of Palestinian Arab Christians. Uh-huh. And, you know, several major Christian churches have been bombed by the IDF. And there are religious leaders. And they, these are, and it's, I mean, it's, it's the Maronites, it's the Greek Orthodox there, mm-hmm. and very historic. So Palestinians are actually... Uh, less now, obviously, Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, is distinctly religious. It's, um, you know, I, I, I would be quite comfortable applying the term clerical fascist, the, yeah. the religious version of fascism, to it. But, um, but that does not describe the Palestinians as a whole by any right. means. You know, no. plenty of them are, and you know, the the old PLO included substantial. Uh, intensely secular Marxist groups that, um, in fact, oh, his right. memory serves George Habash, a name that people used to know. And he headed a, uh, a popular front for liberation of Palestine, I believe. He was a Christian, you know? Uh-huh. So, so it's not so much religious war, but I wonder... Uh, well, religion and nationalism have been conflated. Yes. I mean, that is sort of was the political project of Zionism, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the old-style labor Zionists were very secular. They weren't. Right aggressively religious right so they had to make a deal with the orthodox uh yeah well for those who just tuned in bert cohen here keeping democracy alive we're doing it all together people our guest today is a professor of history at franklin and marshall college van goss who's talking about a piece he wrote in the nation israel's vietnam and ours and many americans alleged and saw the vietnam war the american vietnam war as a racist war what would what what can be said that Israel's war is similarly racist against the other? Well, I mean, they may not be I, one I mean, religion. That, but go ahead. That, I mean, no, that 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 at least significant parts of Israeli society are openly racist towards Arabs. Right. Is I mean, if this is one of these things where it's it's sort of you know Amer- Americans either pretend not to know or prefer not to explode. It's just those, it's a, you know, it's those, some of them over there. I mean, they're now two government ministers who are openly exterminationists and they're not an obscure post like the post office. Mm-hmm. It's the minister of internal security. Is it Smotrich? And they talk about the Arabs and unequivocally racist terms and talk about, um, you know, they can either leave or the army will take care of them. Mm-hmm. That's what we have an army for. Well, you know, so, uh, anti-Arab racism, and one of the first time, various um, people that I that I know who went to Israel years ago, you know, um, or read about, uh, thinking, oh, you know, it's a socialist country. The kibbutzes are wonderful. I'm going right. to go and work in the kibbutz. <clears throat> where, where, you know, the scales fell from their eyes because of the extraordinary racism against the Arab farm workers that was just part of absolutely, you know, part of life and, and, and normalized. Um, so there is a, you know, that, that is a really serious, profound issue. Messianic nationalism most, almost always includes uh-huh. from a form of racism, uh-huh. whether it's, you know, in the American South before and after the Civil War, that would be a good example. Or, I mean, there are many examples of this, where, you know, the nation and finding some racial other, you think of the Rohingya suddenly being expelled right. from, from Burma, right. you know, 
Right. And I'm not trying to do some version of this is just how people are. You know, right. everybody's like this. Everybody, no, actually, not everybody is like this, and not every country does this or in the same way or as badly. This is, but the level of, I mean, I'm not an historian of Israel, so it's confusing because at the same time, there are 20% of Israelis who are Arabs who have purely on paper, okay, but at least on paper, have equal civil rights. They do vote. They get elected on, in some mm -hmm. numbers to the Knesset, where they are never allowed, to, except with one brief instance, to keep Netanyahu out, never allowed into government. So, you know, it's a little bit. I'm just speaking off the top of my head here. It reminds me a little bit of what you used to hear about the American South, where black and white people, despite overt, open and overt white supremacy, lived and worked together in close proximity, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was, and the, the white Southerners would always do that thing, well, you don't really know them the way we right. know them. We really know them. Right. And of course, black Southerners really, really knew the whites too, yeah. but they were around each other. And Though, you know, I'm not sure. Then again, I've also read things, and this is the most disturbing. Uh, from what I've read, virtually none of the carnage, the uh, extraordinary level of destruction and civilian deaths and destitution in Gaza, almost none of it is getting through to the Israeli public. Mm, really? Because, yes, apparently it, it is. They are, and that is, they're really cut off from it because. The, when the impression one has is that if someone, if, you know, uh, newscasters, journalists, whatever, start showing that, they will be, well, I mean, lose their jobs, be harassed, hmm. be cast as, you know, Arab lovers. And there were, if we're, we're just talking about comparisons, similarities, differences between America's war in Vietnam and, and uh, the state of Israel's war in, uh, in Gaza and now the West Bank as well. And one thing that happened in, in our war in Vietnam is that it expanded into Cambodia and Laos, and the war in Gaza mm. has now expanded into, well, the West Bank and also into Yemen and quite possibly Jordan and Iran. Uh, and mm. it seems to be getting, uh, you know, like, like a fire, you know, it, once it starts, it's a little yeah, bit it's tough extremely to contain. frightening. And it's clear that the U.S., that Secretary Blinken and people like him, they know how... I mean, there were significant parts of the Israeli defense establishment that immediately after October 7th uh -huh. wanted to, to right away to go to war with Hezbollah, you know, mm. uh, seek a total military solution. And they were restrained because, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, there, there are no, you know, peace-seeking neutral actors there, right? Iran is not trying to... Iran really doesn't want to go to war with the U.S., but it's happening no. to cause all kinds of damage to Israel's historic enemy. Yes. And so it's a very, you can tell that Secretary Blinken and the Europeans that they're really, really trying to tamp this down, you know, before it gets out of hand. Because, you know, dominoes, I'm not thinking of the domino theory, but, you know, highly mil armed, militarized armed states that believe they're under attack will respond, you know. Yeah. As they respond. whether it's Iran or Israel. Of course they will. And I don't believe there was any way for America to have anything like a victory in Vietnam. I mean, unless you killed each and every Vietnamese, uh, they, they were going to fight back. And, you know, if there were any left alive, they'd never give up their struggle. And I wonder if there's any way, uh, uh, Professor, Van, uh, Professor Goss, if uh, Israel can have a win. 
What, so, do, what are your thoughts? Up until October 7th, Benjamin Netanyahu, and at least probably the it appears that the bulk of Israeli society, because what had been a substantial peace movement had been almost entirely gutted in the past 30 years, um, that they believed they had one. They had Netanyahu is a, uh, uh. A, a brutal but smart man. He's, you know, we, we've, we've all seen the quotes, him telling a Likud party assembly, if we, you know, we need Hamas to make sure there is no Palestinian state. Mm. We're glad to have it. We're glad to let the Qataris transfer lots of money to it, to let people come across the border to work. We are glad to have Hamas there because as long as Hamas is there, there's no unified Palestinian movement, no possibility. And, you know, we can keep the PA over in the West Bank is completely bought off, you know, mm-hmm. PA, re- PA receiving vast quantities of money from the EU and the U.S. So there's patronage and corruption. So this is, I mean, up until October 7th, they would have said, what do you mean we can't win? We have been winning, been winning for 75 years. So we know what we're doing. So now now all bets are off, you know. Yeah. I mean, but... I mean, I have no idea. I mean, there is one general in the Israeli war cabinet whose son was killed on October 7th, who has a lot of credibility, who has now come out openly and said unequivocally, basically, we cannot win. There's no there's not going to be a military solution here. Right. You know, uh, we're not we're we're not going to eradicate Hamas. This we will destroy Hamas completely stuff. Well, no. <laughs> Again, unless unless you go in unequipped, like really kill everybody, right? Right, right. Like really everybody. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if if after all this this carpet bombing campaign, you know, has still has really actually the last time I looked, I mean, these are from credible sources. This is from like you know in the New York Times that you know that that eighteen of Hamas's twenty four battalions were still operating. Mm. So they I mean they've, they've at the cost of tens of thousands of lives. They've actually they're not they're not coming anywhere near achieving their military goal. Mm. So that that also looks like Vietnam. So Snatch, um, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, as someone once said. I don't know. Well, no, but it's Hamas that did it to them, which is part of why I'm really like perturbed and dis- and disturbed when people on the left or progressive people talk about what happened without mentioning Hamas. I'm like, what are you talking about? They did this. They, they, did. they wouldn't appreciate being ignored here. Yeah. This is their agency. They brought the whole thing down, the Samson option. They tore it all down. Yeah. They smashed up Israelis' claim of total victory and domination at tremendous, I mean, brutal cost. You know, it is. Yeah. they committed war crimes. Yeah. But they've smashed the whole thing up. And they, you know, <laughs> they want the credit for it, and they should get it. Mm-hmm. I don't mean credit in a moral right. sense, but <laughs> no. in the strategic sense. This was very successful. It destroyed the Israelis' sense of, you know, impunity and domination. And now here we are. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, there are lessons to be learned from history. Unfortunately, there's yeah. a lot of powerful forces in this country anyway that really don't want us to learn anything from history. But uh, we, I, thank you so much for being with us sure. for this time. Okay. Van Goss, a professor of history at Franklin and Marshall College, is uh, also uh, co-chair of Historians for Peace and Democracy. Yeah, thank look you. us up and join. And where is that on the web, on the internet? Uh, www.historiansforpeace.org. All right. And we're happy to take anyone who's historically minded is welcome to become a supporter or member. 
That would be me. Thank you so much for being All with right. us today. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. Bye bye. Palestine's been occupied for decades, but a home for centuries. This land is generations of my family's memories. To plan, grow, and nurture the symbol of peace. The olive tree is guaranteed that our people can eat. Living with limitations, pushed down by the occupation. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.